If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Psalm 101. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, and as you turn there, let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered why God created and has given us the gospel? I mean, why is it that God created us in his image? Why is it that he endures us and saves us? Now, there's many, there's many answers that we could give to that as we look at God's word, but there's one answer that goes from cover to cover. It's called the kingdom of God, that God is creating a people who will live in a certain place, who will enjoy his rule as they worship and glorify him for all of eternity. In fact, we see that all throughout God's word. Like when Jesus enters the scene in the book of Matthew, he says that he has come to proclaim the kingdom of God. And what we understand is that the kingdom of God is synonymous with the gospel so that those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior become citizens of God's kingdom that we would forever dwell in his presence under his rule. And in fact, we see the end picture of this when we look at Revelation. For example, in Revelation 7, we see that there's a day coming where there will be people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language gathered around the throne of God, worshiping God. And in Revelation 21 and 22, we see that, when, that there's a day coming when Jesus returns that he will make a new heavens and new earth, free from any stain of sin, that we will dwell there in this location under his rule, enjoying him and worshiping him for all of eternity. So that's, that's what we see at, at the far end of the Bible. And if we go back into the Old Testament, we also see the kingdom of God. But we see it in the Old Testament as a foretaste or a foreshadow of the kingdom that Jesus brings. So you see, when we're in the Old Testament, we have what is called Israel. And Israel is God's people saved by God. They're given a place, the land of Israel, that they would live there and enjoy his rule as they worship him. And so ultimately, when we're looking at Israel, we're given this glimpse of the much greater kingdom that takes place through Jesus Christ. And so that's, that's, that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be in Psalm 101. And Psalm 101 is what's known as a royal psalm or a kingly psalm. And so when we're looking at a psalm like this, we're looking at the rule of a king like, like David in the Old Testament, Israel. And we're looking at what it meant for him to be a king. What did it look like for, his rule, for him to rule and reign? And ultimately, when we're in Psalm 101, we're looking at the rule of David. We need to see that David is actually pointing us forward to the much greater king, Jesus Christ. And so when we're in Psalm 101... We're looking at David, we're actually being directed to Jesus, and we're actually being directed to understand what does it mean for us as citizens of this kingdom to live under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to dig into Psalm 101. Here we go. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. 
I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. So let's pray as we dig in. Father, we come to you now. And Lord, I just pray that you would give us wisdom through the power of your spirit. Help us to understand the rule of King David as he ultimately points us to the perfect and greater rule of your son, Jesus Christ. May we understand what it is to be a king, a citizen in this kingdom. And that your kingdom alone will stand for all, of, for all of eternity. God, I pray that you will strengthen us in our hope and our peace. That God, because of what we read today, we will be more fervent in our proclamation of the gospel. And Lord, we will be moved to awe and worship as we see that you are the one true, perfect, just, and loving God. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. All right, uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to make our way through the text. Um, first thing that we need to see is that the king, David, he reflects the very character of God. If you look at verses 1 and 2, we see that David says he rejoices in the steadfast love of God and his justice. He ponders the way of blamelessness, meaning he thinks deeply about uh, how to rule in righteousness. And it says that he wants to walk in integrity, meaning completeness and wholeness, meaning everything that he does, all that he says, every part of his rule, he wants to reflect the very character of God. Now, when we read about love and justice, we need to be careful that we don't import our secular definitions that we have today into the Bible. Um, for example, let, let's, look at, uh, let's look at love and justice just one at a time and see how the world looks at them, and then we'll turn and see what it is that God is saying in his word. When we look at love, especially today, we see the culture says that if we are to be loving, that means we need to be accepting and affirming. And, and one thing that we can all agree on is that we ought to affirm every single person, the dignity and the, uh, the value that they have, because ultimately, every single person is made in the image of God. In fact, last week, if you were with us, we were in Psalm 139, and we saw that God is actually the one who makes us and weaves us and knits us together in our mother's womb. So every person you see, you yourself, you have great value because you are made in the image of God. But then the world says, well, you need to then also accept everything that I believe. And to accept it means to hold it equal to your beliefs as well. And so therefore, um, the way that someone defines their sexual orientation, their view on abortion, their view on marriage, their view on the family unit, and we could look at so many other topics. The world says you must agree on all of those things that they are all equal to your view. And if you don't well, then you're intolerant and you'll be accused of discrimination. And now, when we look at justice, we see equally there, there's a perversion in that the world is brought into it. 
And when we look at justice, something that's very helpful is to understand David Hume and his effect that he has had on government and on justice, especially here in America. David Hume was a Scottish philosopher in the 18th century. He said, there are no moral norms or absolutes that exist outside of us. He taught that the only basis for our moral decisions was not reason, but sentiment and emotions. He said that all moral claims are culturally constructed and thus based upon feelings and preferences. So what this means is that subjectivity rules the day. What's true for you may not be true for me. Um, what's true here is not necessarily true somewhere else. Truth is very subjective. Now, this is the ground in which tyrants and dictators flourish within. This is the ground which breeds uh, a skepticism of God's word and will ultimately reject the authority of the Bible. And so that's, that's what it, love and justice looks like when we come into the world. But when we come into the Bible, we see that David says he wants to rule with a steadfast love. Now that word steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed. And what it refers to, it refers to God's deep, intimate, gracious, faithful, merciful love that he has for his people. And when we come to the word justice, it refers to doing that which is righteous and which is good. And, and it always refers back to the objective truth of God. And so when David says, I want to rule with this hesed love and with this justice, he's not saying how you or I or some other nation might define it. He says, I want to rule in such a way that it reflects the objective truth of who our God is. That is what he's wanting to do. He's wanting to rule in a way that everything that he does reflects the very character of God. And we see this. We see that God's people are to live out this love and this justice all throughout the Bible. In fact, when we come to uh, books of uh, the Bible like Exodus chapters 21, and, uh, 21, 22, and 23, we read how Israel was to treat slaves and widows and orphans um, and those who are poor. It talks about what happens when you find your neighbor's donkey in a field. What do you do? It talks about not bearing false witness or being partial to the rich or the poor. Or when we're in other parts of the Old Testament, we read, what do you do when your ox gets out and it gores another ox? Now, oftentimes when we read texts like that, we're kind of scratching our head going, what are we reading about? Why does it matter what happens when your ox gets out and gores another ox? But, but what God is doing in his word, he's helping his people understand what it means to be loving and just in the original context, in the culture that they lived in. Now, not mo most of us don't have ox, and most of us aren't worried about our goats getting out. But the principles and the truths are the same. How is it that we love? How is it that we do justice and act rightly and kind toward all those that we come into contact with? And of course, the clearest example in God's word is of love and justice is when God sends his son Jesus Christ to this earth. You see, God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross that we who believe in him would be forgiven of our sins. Now, the world will say, well, this is ridiculous. If God is all-powerful, 
then he didn't need to send his son to die on a cross. He could have just forgiven them. But I want you to think about, would a judge be good if he just simply let murders off? If there was no conviction of crimes, no conviction of sin, would there be justice? No. Evil would rule the day. And so God in his perfect justice says that there must be, uh, there must be a penalty, there must be a payment because you have rebelled against his rule. But because you and I, we cannot satisfy the wrath of God, he sends his son Jesus here on earth so that his perfect justice would be satisfied and we who believe in him would experience his perfect Hesed love. And when we believe in him, what we're told is that we become citizens of his eternal kingdom. That we would forever enjoy his blessings and his rule. And now we, on, at this time, as citizens of God's kingdom, were to display his character in all that we do. We're to display his love and justice to those in and outside the church. In fact, uh, the book of Proverbs is all about what it looks like to live as God's citizen in a loving and just way. Um, in Proverbs 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, this is what we read. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. He's saying, don't be evil and trickery in the way you do your work. Proverbs 25, 9, argue your case with your neighbor himself. Do not reveal another secret. He's talking about, don't gossip, don't slander. If you have a problem, go to your neighbor. Proverbs 25, 21, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Again, we're to be known for our grace, our love, our mercy, our kindness, our justice. You see, as Christians, we're to live in stark contrast in this world. We're to be a light in this world. In fact, when the world looks at the church, which the church today is to reflect the very character of God, when the world looks at us is to be as though they're looking at a people of a different culture who live differently with different values because the way we live is meant to reflect our king jesus christ and now the rest of the psalm is going to flesh out what david means when he says i want to rejoice in this hesed love and justice so what's that going to look like played out in his kingdom and so as we look at what David is going to say, we can understand this is what it's going to be like under the rule of Jesus. We see, number one, the king rejects those who are worthless. In fact, in verses 3 and 4, we see that David is careful about who he surrounds himself with. In verse 3, he says he won't put anything worthless before him. He hates the work of all those who fall away, meaning those who are faithless to God, those who are not showing love and justice. In verse 4, he says he wants to keep a perverse heart away from him, meaning he's not going to surround himself with those who reject the wisdom and the counsel of God. What David is saying is he's going to be careful with whom he surrounds himself with. In fact, throughout the Bible, we see the importance of surrounding ourselves with godly wisdom. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, there's this amazing example of what happens when we reject godly counsel. Rehoboam, the grandson of David, becomes king. And when he becomes king, the people of Israel come before him and they say, will you lighten our workload? They say, Solomon, your, your father, he worked as hard as we built the temple and did all of this work, but will you lighten our workload? And so Rehoboam turns to his 
counselors, those who um, gave counsel to Solomon. And he turns to them and says, what do you think I should do? And they say, well, you should respond in love and kindness, and you will win their hearts forever. So he, they said, lighten the workload. But, but Rehoboam said, well, let's just consider that as option A. He then went to his buddies, his frat house guys, and he said, guys, what do you think I should do? And they said, well, you need to let them know that you are far more powerful than Solomon ever was. And if they thought he was strong, you are much greater. And in fact, you are not going to lighten their workload. You are going to increase their workload. Now, you can just guess who Rehoboam followed. Frat house guys or the wise counsel of the elders? He chose these guys, the frat house guys. And on that day, when the men of Israel came to him and said, what will you do for us, Rehoboam? He said, I will increase your workload. And thus, the kingdom of Israel was split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And Rehoboam lost 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel on that day because of ungodly counsel. And so here David is saying, I want to live in righteousness. I don't want to surround myself with the arrogant, with those who are haughty. We need to realize that because of sin, power, prestige, possessions can all be perverted and they can all move us into being arrogant and prideful. That's what happened to Rehoboam and that, if we're not careful, will happen to us, which is why in verse 5, David says, I won't surround myself with those who are arrogant and haughty. He says, i got to remove them, only those who are humble and seek to desire God. And I think what, what the king does here is not only shows how he desires to rule in perfect wisdom and righteousness, but as we, his people, we're to reflect him. So just as David is seeking to be wise with whom he surrounds himself with, so we also are to be wise with whom we are surrounding ourselves with. Because who we surround ourselves with will either lead us into righteousness as we seek to follow God or will lead us into rebellion away from God. So I want to just ask you, what influences you? What are you watching? What are you surrounding yourself with right now? We're, we're not called to be monks. Right? I think there was an idea uh, in the past centuries that we're just to kind of seclude uh, seclude ourselves from society, go hide in our houses, go get into a monastery. But we're called to be light. We're called to be in this world. We're called to, by our very lives, show the difference of who we are. So we can't do that if we're separated. So therefore, we need to think, though, how are we acting? How are we living? What, what influences us? And if you're a parent, how are you shepherding your children so that they would be wise to think through who do they listen to? In fact, when we go back to the book of Proverbs, it's all about giving us wisdom on, how we, on who we surround ourselves with. In Proverbs 15, 22, we read this. Without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. It says we need help in our decisions. But who we listen to? Proverbs 13, 20 says this. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And so I encourage you, we need to think deeply on what we surround ourselves with. And primarily, we need, to, we need to be thinking about the Word of God. We need to dive deep into God's Word that we would see His wisdom, that His Spirit would refine the way we think and the way we act. 
And then we need to be thinking about who do we surround ourselves with just around us. Because those we talk to, those we listen to, will either build us up, or like a drowning person, they will cling to us and bring us down to our destruction. Too often, I think, as Christians, we, we act, but we don't think. We just simply go through life without thinking through, what are the implications? What am I really doing? You see, we need to think through not only about Scripture, but how we use our words. How is it that we joke? We need to think through about what kind of movies, what kind of shows are we listening to? Are the things that you're watching that which honors God? Are they those that, would, that God would find absolutely detestable? We need to think about who do we seek wisdom from? And so David here is, is giving us wisdom on if we're going to live righteously, we need to think through who do we surround ourselves with? But David's not only resisting these ungodly people, we see that he's ultimately rejecting them and destroying them. Look at verse 5. He says, he will destroy the person who slanders. Verse 7, no one who practices deceit will, um, will be in his house. Verse 8, he says, he will destroy the wicked and cut them off from the land, meaning they will enjoy no benefits of the kingdom. So what's happening here? David is promising that only those who reflect the character of God will dwell within the kingdom of God. Anyone who does not reflect the character of God will be removed. Now again, it's at this point we must realize that Israel is a foretaste, is a shadow of the much greater kingdom of God that comes through Jesus Christ. And so when we're looking at the fact that the king says only those who will dwell within his kingdom are those who reflect the character of, character of God, ultimately we're seeing that only those who believe in Jesus Christ are dwelt by his spirit, who live in obedience to God, will live forever in the presence of God. And all of those who reject God, who reject the king, will ultimately be separated for all of eternity. And that's what we see happens in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see that there are two comings of Jesus. In the first coming of Jesus, he comes to the cross as a crucified lamb, that he would die in our place so that we who believe in him would be forgiven, adopted into the family of God, made citizens of his eternal kingdom, and that we would have the everlasting hope of living with God and enjoying him forever. And at the second coming, we understand that Jesus will return and he will gather all those who believe in him, that we would forever live with him in what we saw earlier, the new heavens and new earth. But Jesus doesn't come as a crucified lamb at that time. In fact, in Revelation 19, we see that Jesus comes on a white horse as a divine warrior. And with the power and authority of his words, he strikes down all who reject him. And all who reject his authority, all who reject his rule, all those who have said we will not believe in God, will forever experience the eternal wrath and judgment of, the, of King Jesus. That's what we see um, at the end of the book. That's what Psalm 101 is ultimately directing us to, saying if you reject the rule of the king, if you reject, if you reject Jesus Christ, then you will forever be separated from the rule of God, from the blessings of God, and you will only suffer his judgment. The testimony of the Bible 
is that all the kingdoms of this world will be destroyed. That the world says that there are many ways to God, and Christianity is just one of them, but what we see in God's word is that all other authorities, all powers, all kings, all rulers, one day when Jesus Christ returns, all of that will pass away. None of those are able to overcome the kingdom of God. And so that's, that's this judgment that we see that happens under the king. Now, let's transition, and we're going to go to verse 6, where we're going to go from the heaviness of God's judgment, and then we're going to look at the joy of the reward of those who do follow the king. And then we're going to bring in some application um, at the end of that. So if you look at verse 6, this is what we see. The king honors those who are faithful. And this is the truth that ought to bring us comfort and ought to spur us on in our faith and obedience to the king. I mean, in verse 6, David says he will give favor to those who are faithful. He says they will dwell with him and minister, meaning serve him. Now, I want you to think about it. Remember, what we see in Israel ultimately points us to the much greater king. So G David says, if you are faithful to the king, if you live in righteousness, reflecting the character of God, oh, you will dwell within my house and you will serve me. Now think about what we see in the Gospels when Jesus comes. In John 14, verse 2, this is what Jesus says. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself, and, and that where I am, you may be also. Now notice, where do we dwell? What is the promise Jesus makes? He says, you'll dwell with me in my Father's house. The very thing that David says, you will live within my house. Jesus says, oh, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And on my second coming, oh, I will bring you to live with me forever in my Father's house. In fact, we see this in Revelation at the end in 21 and 22. When Jesus returns and all those who have rejected the rule are judged, we then see what happens for those who love the king. Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4, this is what it says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Notice, God lives with man. Man lives with God. It says, He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's the promise of the king. If we believe in him, he promises us everlasting life, not as servants far from him in the servants' quarters, but we live as sons and daughters in the very house of God, enjoying his rule, worshiping him, full of joy for all of eternity. So I just want to I want to just give us two things to think about based upon what we see with judgment and based upon what we see with the reward of those who, who worship the king. There ought to be at least two things that we do because of this. Number one, we ought to proclaim the gospel message. I want you to think about this. We know that all the nations of this world, all the powers, all the idols, all the pleasures that this world offers will ultimately pass away. They're not going to satisfy us. They provide us with no real satisfaction or security. 
and everyone who trusts in them will eventually be like those who are cast outside the kingdom where there will only be destruction. And so because we have been saved by grace through the message of Jesus Christ, we now go and proclaim the gospel of Jesus that others would be saved as well. So I pray out of our understanding of the greatness of our King, the joy of who He is, the promise that we will live everlasting life in His house, out of that joy, let us go into this world that we proclaim with urgency to those who are passing away. I pray that you understand that we are all commissioned by our King to go forth and proclaim that message. Jesus Christ alone saves. In fact, what he says in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to come to the Father but through Him. Your work, your accomplishments, whatever it is that you do, will not be able to save you. So let us, as those who have understood and been saved by the beautiful joy of God's grace, let us now go and proclaim that message to others. That's number one. Number two, we ought to have hope and peace in this world as we await the return of Jesus. Now, now think about this. We are in an election year. And that means that, that come, come January, uh, we're going to have a new president. And we're, we're either going to have um, a, a president that takes us more left or keeps us somewhat in the right, um, and there's a lot of frustration right now with what's going to happen and how that's going to take place. There's a lot of anxiety that can take place as we go, what's going to happen here in America? And I don't know who's going to be president. I don't know if, if it's going to be Democrat, Republican, or, or something else. But what I do believe is going to happen is that the values of Christianity that for so long here in America have either been, you could say, normative or at least widely accepted. I believe that no matter who is present, those values will continue to be moved to the fringes of society where they're neglected. I do believe that we're moving into times of just greater tension with the rest of the culture as Christians. And some level of persecution, I believe, will begin to increase more and more. Now what that looks like, I have no idea. But that's what it looks like through God's word. And when we look at other nations, we see nations where it is illegal to be a Christian. In fact, we talk a lot about India because we support 16 pastors uh, who live in India, all reaching unreached people groups. And India's desire right now is that they would become a radical Hindu state, meaning they desire that if you are anything but Hindu, it will be illegal and you can be killed. And if you try to convert someone to something other than Hinduism, you could be jailed or killed for that. And we're seeing that in so many other parts of this world. And so there is an anxiety that can be building within our hearts as we look not only at America, but as we look at what's happening in this world and going, it is increasingly opposing the kingdom of God. But then we come back to texts like John 15. Where Jesus said, if the world hates me, then know that it's going to hate you also. But Jesus says he has overcome the world. And we see that truth as we look at God's word, realizing that there is a day when he returns. And on that day, all the kingdoms of this world will pass away. And so no matter who is our president, 
No matter what happens on the political landscape of this world, the message and the mission that you and I have does not change. We are still citizens of God's kingdom if we're trusted in Jesus. The mission is to proclaim the gospel, and we have a hope that one day our king returns. And while we might be rejected or hated or persecuted to whatever extent here in this world, our citizenship in Jesus is 100% secure. And so no matter what happens on this world, we are secure in the very hands of our Savior, of our King, Jesus Christ. That's the hope. That's the peace that we have. So yes, let's be in, involved in politics. Let's be involved in praying for our, our president and our governors and all of those in authority. And let's pray that we make good, just, loving decisions. But let us not be surprised when that doesn't happen. And let us not be moved to anxiety because our hope is not America. Our hope is in our King. Our hope is that Jesus Christ is the one true king and all of the kingdoms will one day pass away. But we who believe in him are promised everlasting life. And so when we come to passages like Psalm 101.6 or, or John 14.2 or Revelation 21, 3 and 4 and we see that we who trust in the king are promised everlasting life and we will dwell in his house let that truth comfort us. So when we do find ourselves fighting pain or discouragement or sin or depression or apathy or frustration and anxiety because of something within us or because of the very political culture or climate or anything else in this world, let us come back to the truth of God's word. It's that truth that gives us hope. It's that truth that strengthens us that we will stand firm in this world. So I want to encourage you, know the word. Know the word. Be a student of God's word. As disciples, let us always learn God's word that we would live and love like he does. And let us be in community with one another. Just as, as David desired not to surround himself with unwise counsel, let us not surround ourselves with unwise counsel. I'm not saying don't have uh, friends that are not Christians, but just who are we listening to for counsel? What are we surrounding ourselves with? Let's come alongside one another so that when we do struggle with anxiety, we would remind ourselves of the truth of the kingdom of God, that we are citizens of his kingdom. And let us, like lifeguards, come and encourage and help one another. So one last thing. As we, as we look at Psalm 101, we must remember that David, David was a man after God's own heart, but he was not a perfect king. In fact, what we see is that there was no perfect king in God's word and, uh, or in the Old Testament. And in fact, what we see is that the good kings led the people that they would follow and, and obey in righteousness. And the wicked kings would lead the people into unrighteousness. The king always represented the people. And so what they need, what Israel needed, is not only a good king, but a perfect righteous king. That would perfectly lead them in righteousness. But then we need one who's not ever going to die. We need an eternal king. So we don't then need another king and hope that he's going to be good. And Jesus Christ is that king. The king of Israel prepares us for the everlasting rule of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is the perfect righteous king that saves us, that we would live in righteousness. And ultimately, we just returns in perfect righteousness. And Jesus is the eternal king. 
He's going to rule forever. We will never, ever, ever, ever need another king. His rule will never end. And so if we trusted in him, our hope is an everlasting hope. I hope you know that. And when he returns, oh, we will dwell with him in a new heavens and new earth, never to experience the pain and the blemish of sin again, but to enjoy the perfect Hesed love and justice of our God, of our King for all of eternity. And so I pray that that encourages you. And if you've not trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've not trusted him as your King, as your Savior, I want to once again encourage you, trust in him today. Believe in him. Realize that everything else that this world has to offer, all the power, all the prestige, all the pleasures, all the possessions, none of it will last. There's a day coming, it's all going to be burned up. Only those who know Jesus will dwell in the house of God forever. Trust in him today. Let me pray. Our Father, Father, we praise you today. We praise you that you are good and righteous and faithful. We praise you that as we look at all the kingdoms of this world and as they can move us into anxiety, as we can wrestle what's going to happen, but then we come to your word. And we see the perfect comfort of your sovereign care that you are guiding all things ultimately to the time where your son will return. And the kingdom of God will, will be here on earth in all of its glory and all of its fullness. And those who have rejected you, those who rebel against you will be forever removed. And only those who have trusted you will live forever in your presence. God, we long for the day. We look forward to that day. And I pray that now, today, because of our love for that day, we would go and proclaim your word. We would help others to see the beauty of you as our king. God, help us to proclaim your message. Save people today. Save people through the proclamation of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we combat any anxiety, any fear, any frustration we have because of our sin, because of the things that we see in this world with the comfort and hope and the truth of your word. You are our king. Oh God, we love you and we worship you. In your name, Jesus, amen.